Welcome to Mayak Innovatsi, the podcast dedicated to innovation from Ukraine to the world. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Mayak Innovatsi, Ukrainian Pitch. I'm Dominic Piotr, I'm the co-founder of the Ukrainian Phoenix Fund, the U.S. representative of Beetroot, and I'm one of the founders of wearehit.org, the humanitarian nonprofit that is bringing new technology in humanitarian work. Currently, I'm super excited because we are printing a school in Viv. This is the first, this is a pilot project. So we're adding 500 square meter building. It's going to be 100 kids. And then the idea is to scale this. We can print anything. Our next project is to print a bridge. We already have the location. It's in the Kherson region. What's nice about the bridge is we don't have to be on site to print. Uh, building, we print on site. Bridges, we can print in a factory and bring the bridge. And it, it's pretty cool. I mean, we can we can print a 15-meter-long bridge. If you want to know more, you can go to weareit.org. But today, it's a, it's a special moment because um, I have two friends with me. They're both French speakers and French-speaking, but, but we're going to do this in English in respect for you. Uh, I met them both in Kiev at different time. I have Sébastien Gobert, who is a French journalist who lived in Ukraine for many, many, many years, who is now um, covering the war and other things based in Brussels, but going back and forth to Ukraine. And uh, Niels Ackerman, who is uh, from Switzerland and who is a photojournalist that I've met in Kiev. Um, during a really cool, actually, reportage, and they, they, they wrote a really cool story in January, just before the beginning of the war. If you want to understand the spirit of people and what was going on before the war in Ukraine, I think that's a really good reportage to read. They not only went to Kiev, but they went to a small town called New York, and that was really, really cool. Very interesting. Niels and Sebastian, super happy to have you on the show. How are you guys? Hi, Dominique. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to be to be to be on the on the on the podcast with you. Niels, how are you? I'm good. I'm uh, actually also quite ecstatic. I see how impatient you are to to come back to Ukraine and uh, we also with Sebastian are planning to travel next week. It's a very special trip for us also because it's like more free than usually meeting uh, friends, seeing what's new, seeing what we can print, 3D print, <laughs> whatever, but uh, yes. it's uh, it's important to see also all this innovation and and like how the country continues to grow up on the path of uh, yeah, technology innovation. My, my first question to, to both of you is, uh, well, actually, it's very clear when we read the, the reportage you made, uh, people were like not really getting ready for the war. People in, I mean, you published at the end of January, <laughs> so months before the beginning of the war. And one of the thing is, uh, Ukrainians don't really believe this will happen. Niels, do, do, do you recall that period of, and, and how would you, qualify it now was it denial was it being the like the ostrich like putting your head in in the sand how would you qualify it and i will ask the same question to sebastian actually to be honest like if you look at like the surrealism of what happened i think it was still fairly okay to believe it would not happen and like all the experts i i don't consider myself as an expert per se but uh, all like real experts working on the, the topic, being it on uh, like military observation, being it for political, uh, all the rational people who had like all the facts uh, at hand agreed on one similar thing. Doing this would be uh, deemed to fail, especially this 
plan to get Kyiv in a few days, that there were not enough military resources, that they were that it would lead to like political uh, challenges, economical challenges for for Russia that would be just absolutely immense, uh, even. Underst- uh, like underestimating the, the level of sanctions that would take place. All the scenarios were really saying that, like, of course this could happen, but that would be so crazy and that would make actually very little sense. So that I think it was still rational and legitimate to think that this may not happen like that. I mean, Dominic, the, the thing, the first thing that we have to mention and that, you know, <clears throat> not enough people remember is that the war hasn't been going on for a year and a half. It's been going on for nine years already. And so these moments of Russian troops massing at the borders and the Kremlin putting pressure on Ukraine and trying to pull some kind of leverage to obtain something from the international community, from the Europeans, from the, from the Americans, it wasn't the first time. And so back in 2021, early 2022, when we saw all of these troops massing, it was basically business as usual. Putin, Putin just wanted to get something from Biden, and that was, that was basically it. Plus, as Nils stressed, the whole idea of this invasion, it was fully irrational from the Russian perspective, because it would go against the interest of Russia. And actually, it turned out that it went against the long-term strategic interest of Russia, if we consider it in, a, in our, you know, sense of Western rationality. There was also like a, a part of, uh, as you said, like the ostrich putting its hand in the, in, in the sand also because it was absolutely, I mean, the challenges ahead in case of a full-scale invasion were just uh, too hard to think about. And I believe that a large share of the Ukrainian population among my acquaintances, my friends, and myself, I mean, it was also something that we, we didn't want to, to conceive. Also, because you have to, and I mean, you know that perfectly well, Dominique, that Ukraine has been a developing country, a transforming country, a country that looked towards the future, that was building itself new opportunities, that was, that was building itself a new, a new future. And the very perspective of a full-scale invasion was to, uh, to, to, to crush all of, these, uh, all of these hopes. And that's what we thought happened at the, the end of uh, February and at the, at the beginning of March uh, 2022. And what we were all very happy that it actually didn't happen, but still uh, quite tough to, uh, to bear for the Ukrainians now. What I still don't understand is, uh, I mean, the differences between the Americans and the European. As you, as you probably know, I have two passports. I have an American passport. I have a French passport. And so I had calls from both the U.S. Embassy and the French Embassy. And the U.S. Embassy was telling me, now it's time to go. It's time to go. Go, 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 go. It's happening. And the French Embassy, including the French ambassador himself, were saying, oh, no, don't worry. Uh, Our analysts are telling us nothing is happening. And actually, most European countries were not ready when the war started to evacuate their, uh, their citizens. Where the U.S., we were long gone, and, and I'm sure you're not going to explain this, but but it seems that at least someone was aware of something happening and was trying to tell people this is irrational, but this is happening. You don't put 140,000 troops along the border just for shits and giggles, as we would say. 
Well, but w- when when you are the master of the Kremlin for over twenty years, you actually do that, <laughs> and sometimes yeah. it works. You know, but like this time, it just like went further. I mean, you have to remember that it was not only the Germans or the French uh, denying this perspective; it was also Zelensky. Zelensky himself, he was true. really at the he very was really the eye of the storm, and until the very last moment, he was saying, "No, no, no, stop." All of this nonsense, it's bad for the economy. Please, let's talk about something else because this invasion is never going to happen. That was extremely, extremely hard to, uh, to, to explain from, from all sides. You also have to understand, like, the way we understand that the, the intelligence services worked is that basically all of the allies had the same information. The only thing is that the Brits and the, U- and the, the Americans came to different conclusions than the Germans and the French. There was this, but also you say, okay, Americans say this, Europeans say something else, whom to believe. It's not because American service or government says something that we always, or it's the same for for any kind of governmental bodies, that we always have to take it for, uh, for granted and for absolute truth. If it was the case, I think we would be probably on a constant state of panic with signals coming from everywhere. And we saw in the past, and I mean, U.S. unfortunately also has a history of saying things that were not exactly accurate in, in a geopolitical terms, if you remember, for Iraq and stuff. Uh, I don't want to... Very true. ...to throw under the, under the bus what American service said, yeah. because it happened to be perfectly accurate in this case. But uh, yeah, it, it was also a surprise, because they, they often give signals that are like slightly exaggerated or... Uh, over pessimistic, over optimistic, depending on the situation. So or, or in it's our interest, job also as in their own interest. Yeah, exactly. Intelligence so it's, is it's, also a weapon, it's, right? It's our duty to always take things with a grain of salt, and that's why I was gathering as many information from different type of experts from different fields uh, to try to have like a, an understanding of what is at stake. And uh, and yeah, to come back to to this thing, all the rational analysis were just saying. It would make no sense, and uh, as Sebastian highlighted, it actually makes no sense. It's still happening, but uh, I still think it was honestly okay to believe that it, it has no practical reason to happen. Let's switch gears and, and move to another topic that I really wanted to cover with you guys is um, the, the work that you do, how to be a journalist and how to cover Ukraine in terms of wars. And there's several types of journalism that happens, but we also that for the first, probably one of the really first time in the world, this is also a war of information, which means that you guys, journalists, have an absolutely key role in explaining what's going on. And, and we see what's going on in Russia and the way journalists explain what's going on or do not explain what's going on or manipulate what's going on. Um, and, and so how do you do your job during the war that is, once again, and we, and we saw what Zelensky is doing. I mean, he's really playing the, I mean, doing the PR job as, as best as you can. I mean, we've never, I, I don't think we've never seen anything like this uh, mm. before. So Sebastian, how do you work? Well, I mean, as, as best as possible, obviously. I mean, yeah. the, first, the first time that communication was, was, uh, was used as a tool, uh, as, a, as a tool of like waging a war, on the, um, on, on the spot, it was actually the first Gulf War in 1991. So now we start like to have some kind of uh, experience with, you know, the use of the images and the use of uh, social networks, of, uh, obviously, but also on the relationship with the, with the army, like working 
as a journalist in Ukraine, it's not the same thing as working embedded with the army in Ukraine to go to go on, on, on the front line. So far, I would say regarding my personal case that it hasn't really affected the way that I work in the sense that I don't have the feeling that uh, I have been prevented from covering some aspects of the war. Uh, Ukrainians are still extremely accessible, like public officials, ministers, MPs. They're extremely accessible. It's possible to just to write to them on Facebook or on Twitter, and uh, it's, it's very likely that we're going to get an answer. There is a very high demand of transparency coming from the civil society. This has been true mm-hmm. for quite a lot of time in Ukraine, but obviously now that all eyes are fixed on Ukraine and also that the country is applying for EU membership, uh, it's extremely acute. So I don't really have the feeling that uh, it has really impacted the way that I work, obviously, like regardless of the overall, uh, the overall context. Um, the only thing that maybe it has changed is that Putin has made our work a bit easier. Because if you remember back in 2014, the annexation of Crimea and beginning of, uh, of this uh, hybrid war, if, we, if, if I may call it that way, uh, in, in, in eastern Ukraine, in Donbass, there was always this controversy who is fighting, who is there, who is the enemy, and so on, so on, so on. But starting from 2000, uh, the, the 24th of February 2022, it's obvious. So in that sense, like we have been covering this war from a very, very black and white angle. We know who attacked, we know who is the victim, and we know who should win, and we know who should lose this war. And this is not incompatible with the work of uh, of uh, a field journalist. So, in 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 that sense, it, this is mostly you know like the the very con- the conceptual framework of uh, of my work as a journalist has uh, has yeah. been affected by this uh, this Putin's decision. But as for the rest, it's really okay. Ukraine is extremely open, extremely open to journalists. Like obviously, from time to time, we have. Like some issues with accreditations or with accessing a front line because it's a, it's a sensitive moment or a sensitive spot. But overall, it's extremely, extremely open. Niels, what did you take? And as a photojournalist, uh, which is, I'm not, I'm not going to, to say it's different, but you have to take pictures. So you, you have to go. You, you cannot stay in your office and see what's going on, which is I'm not saying what is Sebastian doing because he's a great journalist and he goes on the field. But I'm not thinking that journalists and CNN uh, who are in the studio in Atlanta are going on the field. I don't think so. So you have to go on the field. So what, how, how has it changed and how important do you feel your work is to let people know what's going on? And I'm thinking of places where... Like, honestly, when, when, when we see what happened in Bucha, where we see what, uh, what happened in Mariupol, what happened in, in Bakhmut, I mean, it's, it's devastating. And we have to show this to the world. I mean, it's, it's also about the images. So how, how do you work? I'm, I'm not a war photographer. We, in Ukraine, every journalist in the end ends up being a war something uh, in some ways. But, uh, uh, I mean, I don't have, like, most of the experience and... Uh, like the skills you need to cover uh, the hottest parts of uh, a conflict like the one that ignited uh, last February. 
so I was in Geneva when uh, the full-scale invasion started. Before that, I did a few stories about the, the conflict that started in uh, in 2014, but uh, not like really like you know frontline stories for practical reasons. First, because like as I said, I don't have the what I consider as like the normal uh, like skills to do this properly, to not become like a burden for the soldiers or people who uh, spend time with you. Because I think I can tell stories about the country in another way. And that's something that I really liked when we were working with Sebastian over the last few years. For many years, like I, I was in Ukraine, I started working in Ukraine in 2009. I was there when the, the war started until 2017. I didn't want to do any story about this war. And it's only at this moment that I started going to like closer to the front line and doing a few stories there because I thought I, I, I could contribute in a different ways. Because of us also of an economic aspect, I'm a freelancer. I work for a small structure. My agency is called Lundi 13. Uh, we work with Swiss media, with some international media as well. Uh, but I don't have the capacity to spread my work to like extremely large right. audience, like someone from Reuters or AFP would do. And because of that, I prefer focusing on stories that can a bit go out of the the, the mainstream, uh, the main like flow of information. And and that's one of the reasons why I decided back in end of February that it's probably not the time to go because there are already many photographers, including many Ukrainian yeah. extremely talented photographers other like foreigner specialist of uh, like hot conflict and my time if i can say so would come later and, and it came we went back uh, like back in uh, yeah may last year with sebastian and then back like again uh, in winter i was there also in january this year of course you get closer to the the front line because there are interesting stories and important stories to to say from there it's something you have to adapt and and i'm i'm learning also like to go to these kind of areas to identify yeah. my own relationship to to this danger which I, I i still keep extremely conservative compared to many of my uh my uh, colleagues i also think and that's kind of my my perception as a as of my role as a journalist that we have to keep also the attention, to keep people's uh, attention on, on Ukraine, that we have to yes. not only show these pictures from, from Bakhmut, we have to speak about Bakhmut, we have to speak about the bombings in Kherson and stuff, but we also have to say about other stories, maybe not even war-related, or to show how the, the country is going on. And because like at some point, people just see, okay, violence, destruction, death, I understand, and I saw that in Syria, I saw that in, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and at some point they just skip everything. So we have to hold them by the hand and say, hey, look, there is also an interesting story. Could be fun, could be could be surprising, but it, it has to exist in, in ways, and that's also our, our duty. One of the things that fascinates me about Ukraine, of course, but uh, the IT sector, because I, I'm, I'm a geek, I'm an IT guy, an IT schnick. <laughs> <laughs> Is, is the resilience of Ukraine in general uh, and, and the resilience of the IT sector, which is which is pretty phenomenal. And I think it's a, it's a really great story. What, one of the things that is uh, really interesting to me as, and worries me a bit is the fatigue of the, the media, especially in the US, uh, but also in Europe, about the war. We definitely see that that President Zelensky is going all over the world. He's doing an amazing job to, to get weapons and to 
to publicize what's going on in Ukraine and I think is getting a lot of attention. But are you worried that there will be a, a kind of that fatigue where the support of the population in the US and in Europe will, will suddenly say, okay, well, whatever, there's another war, what, we don't care. What, what do you think about this and how you as journalists can work on this? First, like uh, as, as we speak now, you know, at the end of May, 2023, we have to uh, remember that we're all waiting for a counteroffensive, for a counterattack yes. from the Ukrainians. And this is also going to determine the, um, the tempo of uh, the media discourse on Ukraine in the next weeks, in the next months, and also whether Western audiences may still be interested in Ukraine and in the, in the Russian war against Ukraine as a moving conflict as a conflict with perspectives, good or bad, or uh, whether it's going to become just uh, yet one more of these uh, frozen conflicts, which by essence uh, don't really, you know, stir up interest in the audience after a few months of, uh, well, the trenches. And, uh, and, and, and which was the case since 2014. I mean, it's, it's exactly. been a frozen con conflict for, forever. Exactly, exactly. And I, I always stress that, uh, well, you know, the Ukrainians were obviously the first victims of the war and the state of Ukraine was under a lot of uh, st stress to, to keep up with the war effort. But still, towards the end, 2017, 18, 19th, the Ukrainian public didn't want to hear about the Donbass war anymore. And this is also one of the reasons why Zelensky won back in 2019. Also have to replace that in the context. Regarding the overall process of, you know, the fatigue of uh, the Ukrainian fatigue of the, of, the, of the public opinions across Western countries and, uh, and beyond, I'm not really worried about it because I know it's going to happen. It's, uh, it's just the way the human, uh, human mind works and the earth is round and the earth is big and there are many, many things happening. Uh, so I know it's going to happen. I see that it's not going to happen among the, the leadership, among the governments, uh, mostly the, the Western governments, that 24th of February, 2022 has really changed something in the mindsets of Western leaders and, you know, Western state institutions as such, and that there has been some kind of awakening. And this is not going to go away. This is not going to go away anytime soon. So public opinion may, you know, place this as secondary. Scaled back in the, in, in, the rank, in the rank of their priorities. But uh, the overall support for Ukraine and the overall interest in what is happening in, uh, in, in Ukraine and, you know, beyond that with Russia and with the, the European security architecture, this is not going to fade away. I guess like this question kind of overstate the role of media because like, yeah, it helps shaping the opinion. But as Sebastian highlighted, there, there is a difference between opinion of population and action of politicians. We see also all these questions like, if Trump is elected, what will happen? Maybe I'm, I'm over optimistic, but there are strategic interests for many countries. If we think of European countries, if we think of US, uh, if we think of like, yeah, what, it, what signal does it give to China, to many other countries? Even if the population stops reading articles in Time magazine or New York Times about what's happening in Ukraine, it's not like the impact of 
US government sending military help or financial help or European uh, Union doing so. Uh, it, it's not like for them it's going to have such a such a, an impact because their strategic interest remains the same. And Russia really changed and moved a lot of, uh, of parameters right. since February in this regard. It's, it's important that I think everybody moves in one direction because like you can have election that brings like a populist movement and then maybe fragilize some, some ways. But the macro level, who has to stay stand on which position is, is quite clear. And uh, in this regard, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. So I expect we see already Ukraine is not on the cover page uh, of newspaper as much as it used to be some weeks or months ago. And that's logical. And that's going to continue downward. But the, the geopolitical context is here. For, for quite a bit. Very personal point of view. Approach to journalism has always been first to do to work on, on stories and on reports that I'm actually interested in myself. Uh, this is my, my first, you know, uh, motivation, my first priority. And uh, to produce my reports, to produce my articles, and then if there is an audience for that, then I'm extremely happy about it, obviously. But nevertheless, my inner motivation has always been to go and meet people on the field to understand the situation and then to uh, to write a story and then to share it where the audience is responsive to that it's already not you know it's not it's out of my reach but what, what, I, what i've been what i've been doing for the past 15 years it, it's not going to change so anyway i know that uh, me and nils and my colleagues uh, will always be there to tell the stories and we just hope that some people will want to hear them a small anecdote on this, yes. uh, in this respect, the, our last book, New York, Ukraine, which is about this city yes. you, you mentioned before, this New York, which is in Ukraine, like really next to the front line. It was next to the front line when we were doing it. It's now surrounded because it's between Avdivka and Bakhmut, pretty exposed, but still like it's not occupied by, by Russians. We were working on this since 2018. We published the book in November 21. It was a project in, united by, uh, by Sebastian, and uh, I liked doing this because it was a way for us to speak about the war differently. But I thought, okay, like after eight years of this conflict, who is really interested in this? And I really expected it would be like a totally niche book that we would sell like 350 copy of that. And that would be already... Which is already a lot. <laughs> which is already a lot, but like well, for yeah, a photo book, you know, a there, lot, there yeah, are many yeah. constraints. So I was in this mindset. To be honest, I think I would have preferred it to be resolved because February 22 happened and uh, the book sold very well. We had to even reprint it. So it sold like many thousands of copies. It's nice for the book in itself, but it's sad because it sells for, the, for, for extremely sad reasons. But uh, yeah, we don't work on projects for, like, because we want to sell it like, like a pop music. We do things for our own curiosity at first. And we always have this conviction that if you do things with passion and if you go deep in, uh, in what you do, uh, there will be a public for it. By the way, you can still buy the book. Is it only in French? New York, yeah. Ukraine, yeah. But the previous ones, yeah, so... uh, Looking for Lenin, for example, exist in English. Sebastian and Nils uh, wrote a few books together, Looking for Lenin. You can uh, find it on any good library, and it's also in English. Uh, New York, Ukraine, I love this book, is um, actually only in French. And Sebastian, you wrote a, a book with uh, Richard Werley uh, called Ukraine, Héros Malgré Eux, which is also in French, and that you published in May 2022. So <laughs> I also recommend you read that book. Oh, Last question. 
What's next? What's your hope? For us in terms of journalistic projects or for Ukraine? Yes. No, for, for Ukraine. What's the hope? And once again, I'm not talking about victory because I think this is the goal and this is what we all hope for. But, but what do you hope for? It's not a hope, it's a certainty that Ukraine is the place to be and Ukraine is going to be the place to be in the decades following the victory. I mean, this country has so much to offer, this country has so much energy, so much, uh, so much, so much potential and given the circumstances, given the issues and the, and the tragedies that Ukraine and Ukrainians have gone through, uh, once the victory is acquired, uh, it's, 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 it's going to be an amazing explosion of you know enthusiasm optimism projects uh, investments and, uh, and and so on and so forth ukraine for itself it's going to um, to develop at a very very fast uh, pace after after the victory obviously like we still have to you know understand the conditions of this victory and also the conditions of the recovery but still there will be uh, there will be some kind of a, some kind of a boost but also And this I'm absolutely convinced of uh, for, the, for already quite many years that Ukraine has a lot to offer to the EU and to Western Europe in terms of innovation, in terms of creativity, in terms of flexibility as well, and in terms of openness to another vision of doing business or, of, or, or doing politics. I have seen this, I've witnessed it on the field, Niels as well and the whole world has been witnessing it like since 24th of february 2022 and we see now that it's actually uh volodymyr zelensky i mean he, his new codes of political communication and that other leaders are just trying and we also see ukrainian ex exiles like refugees coming to eu countries right. and rediscovering the waiting lines rediscovering the paper-based administration, rediscovering yes. the long, long... I hear that a, a lot. <laughs> or a passport or something like that, which is not conceivable in Ukraine anymore. So, yeah, there is really something that Ukraine has to bring, uh, has to offer to, uh, to, to Europe and to the rest of the world, depending. But I'm, I'm certain, I'm certain that Ukraine is the place to be. One thing that, that amazed me and that, I mean, that happens with every conflict, but like two years ago, most of my friends were barely able to point where Kyiv or Ukraine is on the map of the world. Now they know where Bakhmut is compared to Kharkiv. They know uh, every single point of uh, geography of, uh, of Ukraine. True. It's not only this, but they realized uh, how cool the country is. And this is important thing that, that happened is that Ukraine didn't do too many mistakes. Like it's, it's quite impressive uh, over the worst year of uh, existence of the country over the last, I don't know, like 50 years, they managed to go through an extremely hard crisis without doing too many wrong steps. There were a few things that could have been done better, but nothing that kind of cut the sympathy that the West developed for the country. So it became, in the eyes of most Westerners, the coolest country in Europe. My friends who are in the Swiss army, they check 24-7 uh, on Twitter what's going on in Ukraine uh, defense strategy. They listen to interviews of Zaluzhny. They are fascinated by what's going on. Friends in IT sector, they already knew that Ukraine was, uh, was amazing. 
it's just the beginning because Ukraine didn't do many mistakes. Ukraine was able to seize this window of opportunity to show like, look, not only we resist, not only we fight and we survive, but we are also super cool. We do memes. We have sense of humor that is so great. We do political communication like no one. Like we can have fun of our enemy. It's, it's insane. Plus music, they win Eurovision. Uh, they spread with their concerts all over Europe. Like, I, I guess Ukrainian culture will have a gain of visibility and I can't wait for the moment. And that's something that is also going to be driven by the diaspora with this huge amount of uh, immigrants. I see like just in a city like Geneva, there are more than 7,000 Ukrainians with S permit uh, living in, in my city, Geneva. Uh, in, in Switzerland, it's 80,000. So eight, the equivalent of eight Swiss cities filled only with Ukrainian. That's huge. And that means that in a few years, there will be pop stars like Dua Lipa, who is from Albania. In a few years, there will be Ukrainian-born pop stars being a hit all over Europe. There will be footballers in maybe the Swiss team or French team or whatever team who will be named Mitro or Taras. And this will contribute and continue to create this imbrication like this uh, netting connection between ukrainian culture and uh, the rest of europe and that will also bring many things back as sebastian mentioned the negative things of ukrainians discovering how inefficient and not digitalized our administration is and yes i <laughs> yes. pray constantly to have something like dia uh, please give us a humanitarian help uh, from ukraine it sector but also ukrainians who live in, in, in Western countries, in the rest of, uh, of Europe, they can see maybe things in like educational system, health system, whatever. Like there are still things that need to continue reform in Ukraine. And maybe they can also bring ideas from their experience in, uh, in other countries. And that will also contribute to like this explosion of innovation in Ukraine, which at some point may even <laughs> become scary for uh, the rest because like at the moment, uh, Swiss will realize uh, how slow and, and uh, how dated we are on so many things. I'm extremely optimistic in all these regards. I can't wait for this. I feel exactly the same. And I can't wait actually to be able to go back to Ukraine more. But now I have a plan to catch and I don't want to miss my trip to Lviv. <laughs> so, and I hope I'm going to see you there. So guys, thank you so much. That was really cool. Really interesting. We can find you on social media, of course. And uh, don't hesitate to buy Niels and Sebastian's book. Those two guys, they really know Ukraine.